For me, it was real simple. As a young lieutenant back in 1985, I was on a deployment with my unit to West Berlin. And we went through Checkpoint Charlie. When I came out on the other side to East Berlin, I was like, oh, hell no. I don't want to live like that. In 1995, I'm stationed in South Korea near the DMZ. And I look across and I see North Korea. I saw socialism. I saw Marxism. I saw communism up front and in person. When people have the scales taken off their eyes, then they can see clearly. Hey, greetings, everyone. Thanks for joining us here on another episode of the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. You know, last week we talked about gun control and some of the real problems that are there. It's not about the gun control. It's not about red flag laws. It's about the laws that we have on the books. It's about breakdowns in the system. And we started out by talking about one of the goofy statements. I know a lot of goofy statements come from this show, The View, that was uh, issued by Joy Behar when she said that when blacks own guns, gun laws will change. And we kind of had to help her understand that, you know, I am black and I do own guns and I'm fine with what we have right now. As a matter of fact, I'm a firm believer in the Second Amendment. But this week's episode, we want to draw attention to another goofy comment that was made on The View by one of the co-hosts, Sonny Hostin, when she said that she didn't understand black Republicans and she considered black Republican to be an oxymoron. Well, Sonny, I have to tell you something. The only thing that is oxymoronic is just take an oxy out and use the word moronic to what you just said. And I think that that's one of the things we need to discuss here in the United States of America, because going back to the 2020 election cycle, we all remember when candidate Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden at the time, he made the real insidious, I think offensive, pretty racist comment that you ain't black if you don't vote for him. And what we see happening in the United States of America is this revisionist history. It is trying to say that your skin color has to dictate your thoughts, perspectives, your opinions, and your assessments. And I don't see that to be the case. And so just for a little historical lesson for Sonny Hostin, you know, the Republican Party of Texas was founded in 1854 on a single issue, and that was to abolish slavery, end slavery, something that the Democrat Party fought to maintain. As a matter of fact, Democrats did not support the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, did not support the 14th Amendment, which extended citizenship and rights to those recently freed slaves. So that's the history of that side of the aisle. And so when you talk about black Republicans, when you talk about black conservatives, you have to remember that the very first members of the United States House of Representatives and Senate who were black were Republicans. I have a great book on that called The Capital Men. There were seven of them. As a matter of fact, I had the honor of being the person that followed up one of those individuals, Joshua T. Walls, the first black Republican member of Congress from the state of Florida. He served from 1873 to about 1875. It was a long time before we had the second 
black Republican from the state of Florida, yours truly, back in 2010. But there's always been that relationship. There's always been that understanding of principles and values. And I think it's an important time for us to start talking about those principles and values. My ideological mentor is a guy by the name of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington, and this is his autobiography, Up From Slavery. He was born into slavery. And when he was found out that he was free, first thing he wanted to do was get an education. And he was such a tenacious advocate for education for recently freed slaves, first and foremost his family, that he was given an impeccable task. And that was to start the very first institution of higher learning for blacks in the South, Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute. And Booker T. Washington had a three-point plan. It was education, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance because he understood that it was not just about the book learning. It was about learning to do things with your hands, being a productive member of society, not sitting around and waiting for someone else to define your equality. Your productivity would define your equality. And that's why when you look at Tuskegee Normal Industrial Institute, think about George Washington Carver really the founder of agricultural research on college and university campuses and what he was able to do there at Tuskegee. Because there at Tuskegee, the students, they don't know how to make bricks. They built their own buildings. They built their own desks. They learned trades and skills on top of being able to fortify their mind. Is there any reason that we should doubt why the very first black fighter pilots were called the Tuskegee Airmen, and they started there at that institution? Because it was an institution that looked at you and said, it's not about the color of your skin, as someone would later say. It's about the content of your character. And the color of your skin does not dictate how you think and where you can go and what you can become. Booker T. Washington and many of those early black conservatives, Madam C.J. Walker and so many others, they understood about entrepreneurship. They understood about building businesses and supporting the community within itself and not being reliant and dependent. And that's something that really is the basis of conservative thought and principle. See, I remember growing up in the inner city of Atlanta, Georgia. Some of you know my story. I was born in a blacks-only hospital in Atlanta, Hughes Spalding Hospital in 1961. But as a little kid growing up in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood, the same neighborhood that produced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I remember Auburn Avenue, and I remember seeing black businesses, doctor's offices, lawyer's offices. I remember Citizen Trust Bank building, which was a black-owned bank. But what we see today happening in those inner cities is a destruction of those foundations, those fundamentals, first and foremost, the traditional nuclear family. You know, you got this group out there running around saying, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. But which Black Lives Matter to them? The Black Lives, 20 million plus, that have been murdered in the womb? Nah, you don't hear them say anything about that. Black Lives Matter was against the traditional nuclear family. And see, when I was growing up, to see a kid, girl or boy, without mommy and daddy in the home, that was really rare. As a matter of fact, you can go back and look at the, the percentages and the statistics nationwide. It was about 75 to 
of black children had mommy and daddy in the home. That made a huge difference, made a huge difference in my life. But today, that number is 24%. The cause of that? A guy from Texas, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who came up with his Great Society programs, and he said part of the Great Society programs was if a woman has a child out of wedlock, the government will provide her financial compensation, a check, no matter how many children she has out of wedlock. But the caveat was that there couldn't be a working man in the home. So now today we have 24% of black kids have a mother and father in the home. And look at all the second, third, and fourth order effects that that has. But yet, black lives matter. They don't talk about that because those lives don't matter. The retardation of education and equality of opportunity in these inner city communities, the rise of gangs and the black-on-black crime and that type of violence, you don't hear them talking about that. And so the conversation needs to get back to truth. The conversation needs to get back to what used to work, what used to be the defining principle in the black community. To parents in the home, quality education, guidance, mentorship, determination, discipline, respect, honor, character. But we don't see that. See, I remember, you know, on a Sunday morning, you woke up, you did your house chores, whatever they had to be that Sunday morning. You had family breakfast, and then everyone took off to go walk to their respective churches because you were going to go to Sunday school. And then after Sunday school, you're going to go to church. And even if you couldn't sing like yours truly, you're still going to be in the youth choir or the children's choir because that was part of your upbringing. That was part of your well-rounded education. Wednesday night, you're going to go to Bible study, youth Bible study. During the summer, you're going to go to youth Bible camp. What happened in the black community? So tonight, we're going to sit down and talk to a couple of gentlemen who have done, I think, a remarkable thing. They have come up with one documentary, and they're about to release the second documentary, the follow-up to it. And the title is Uncle Tom. Because what happens when you challenge the progressive socialist left and the black intelligentsia, the gatekeepers that are out there, like this Sonny Hostin, who says that black Republicans are an oxymoron, you get called these disparaging, denigrating, demeaning names. Uncle Tom, sellout, white man's porch monkey, house N-word. But who are the real sellouts? When I was in the Congressional Black Caucus, I remember that the Commandant of the United States Marine Corps invited us over to his quarters there at the 8th and I Barracks in Washington, D.C. And the purpose was that he wanted to try to get the Congressional Black Caucus members to talk about the opportunities there were to become an officer in the United States Marine Corps, to go to the Naval Academy, all of these things. Because remember, as a member of Congress, you have the opportunity to nominate someone to go to these academies, service academies. Now, of course, he wanted to send people to the Naval Academy. I want them to go to West Point. Well, maybe not today. So there's some real woke stuff happening at West Point and in all of our service academies. But the thing was that these members of the Congressional Black Caucus They were just poo-pooing away the nominations that they had. I didn't see it that way. It's just the same as 
these members of the Congressional Black Caucus thought that vocational education, the things that Booker T. Washington talked about enabling the community to be able to go out and start their own businesses, to be able to be productive members of society, they thought that vocational education and training was racist. I remember back when I was in high school, you had wood shop, you had automobile mechanic, you had all of these things that you, you could learn and it could teach you to do. Home economics was not about cooking, folks. Home economics was understanding how you manage and operate and budget a home. Junior achievement, where we take young people in these inner city communities and we bring them on the main street. And some people are bankers. Some people are in the insurance. Some people are in certain businesses. But they learn how to develop economic plans and business plans. That's what Booker T. Washington was talking about. That's what we need to get back to. So tonight, we're going to talk to Justin Malone and Chad Jackson, who are on the verge of releasing Uncle Tom 2. And if you have not seen the first Uncle Tom, you need to see it. Groundbreaking. It really helps people to understand that this thing about being a black conservative or a black Republican, it is not an oxymoron. There's nothing new about it. And I think more and more people in the minority communities are starting to wake up and realize they don't have to be economically enslaved. They can be economically empowered. And that is what we have to restore in our inner city communities if we're going to see the restoration of the United States of America. Two choices in life. You can choose to be a victor. You can choose to be a victim. And there are too many people out there in the United States of America that are talking about being a victim. And we've got to break that cycle. We'll be right back. We have a unique opportunity, because of who we are, to broach this subject in a way that can make the dam break and that can expose falsehoods and lies and, by God's grace, make the lion rats begin to scurry as we shine the light of truth. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. And as promised, I'm joined by the Uncle Tom 1 and 2 crew, and that is Justin Malone, independent filmmaker, who is the director and producer of Uncle Tom 1 and 2, and Chad Jackson, who is the star of Uncle Tom 1 and 2, and also one of the chief researchers. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Thanks for having us. You know, a lot of folks out there probably don't know your story and your background, so let's start from there. How did you get involved with independent filmmaking and, uh, you know, kind of what's your background? Where are you from and all of that? Uh, I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. And my parents were young when they had me. So I still, when they were, they were still into art and music and mm -hmm. film. So mm -hmm. both my parents are uh, very much into cinema, uh, classic cinema. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with that and a lot of music. Yeah. So I always had that in me and, um, I'd say when I was about 15 or 16, my best friend got a video camera and we made a couple skits and <laughs> I saw the P 
people react to them. And I knew from that moment on that that's what I wanted to do. So, so you like Turner it. classic movies more than anything else? Maybe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love classic movies. And, you know, I, I, the longer, the better. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah. Cool Hand Luke. Like a lot of the Jimmy Stewart stuff. Like my mom raised me on those those films. Mm -hmm. so, now, it's real interesting, though, because you have more of a constitutional conservative perspective. And a lot of people would say being in the film industry, you're, you know, I hate to say, it, but the oxymoron, yeah. you're the outlier. Definitely. Well, I was always, I guess, going against the grain, mm -hmm. um, uh, punk rock or what have you. Yeah. I would say that, you know, I became very liberal like most teenagers do. Yeah. And that was around the 90s when you had the Rage Against the Machine and, like, you had that very anti-American uh, cultural movement. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated from film school in 2002, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine had just come out. Mm -hmm. And I was familiar with his uh, Roger and Me film. And I remember watching uh bowling for columbine and i i loved it i thought it was a fantastic film mm -hmm. it was very well done but at the end of the film he kind of deceived charleston heston and did this kind of dirty editing and going back to my younger we always watched the ten commandments and ben hur mm -hmm. and i was like it just made me feel weird like why would you do that to to moses yeah why would you do that <laughs> yeah and i was in the car with my dad and i was telling him how much i enjoyed the film and you know maybe i've watched something like uh politically incorrect with bill maher and i was yeah. and he listened to me and then uh, probably in 15 minutes he explained the second amendment to me and it made a lot of sense mm -hmm. and so i kind of went back to my family you know growing up in around christians and growing up around conservative men i had kind of denounced that and rebelled against that but i kind of that conversation kind of opened up my mind and I kind of started sneaking in some talk radio and mm -hmm. started listening to Rush and Dennis Prager mm -hmm. and Laura Ingram at the mm -hmm. time. So I did that for a couple of years, you know, just on my own and eventually started discovering, you know, George Orwell and Ayn Rand and the classics. Yeah. And so being immersed in, in the film industry, I kind of kept it under wraps. Where did you go to film school? Full Sail University in Florida. Okay. Yeah. And then eventually it just kind of, I did a political film in 2008 about illegal immigration that, you know, didn't really ever surface. It kind of got taken. And so life went on. And then 2015, 16, the, you know, enter the, the Trump era, I had this burning desire. I, I was kind of going through a life change and I wanted to, you know, I was looking for something. I, I felt very empty in it. And the whole Trump awakening, but I'd always been thinking about black conservatism because of Herman Cain yeah. and the hip hypocrisy there. And, and, you know, I had found people like yourself, mm -hmm. Larry Elder, mm -hmm. um, uh, Thomas Sowell. Mm -hmm. So I knew there was a story there. And, you know, once I think it was between, you know, when Candace Owens was kind of exploding and Brandon Tatum was exploding, I saw these millennials coming. I was like, there's a story here. Yeah. And so I actually shot a couple preliminary interviews is where I met Chad. He was one of the first three that I shot in Dallas. And after I left that interview, um, I was like, there is a story here. And I took his interview, chopped it up, 
uh, into like a 10 minute edit. And I went to Los Angeles to get Jesse Lee Peterson mm -hmm. and Larry Elder and the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah. So Chad, how did you come into this uh, awakening and what's your background? I know you're here from Dallas as well. Yeah. yeah. So I grew up actually in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. And, the other uh, side of 360, right. for those who know out here. Yeah. <laughs> so I was uh, raised in a household, both mother and father at home. Um, there was a lot of contradictions in my house growing up. My dad was an entrepreneur. He is a cowboy from Arkansas. Mm. Uh, my mom comes from Oklahoma. And she very much believed that America is a racist country and that her kids need to be prepared for uh, this country being against them at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. So growing up, we watched films like Roots and Beloved and uh, Rosewood and all these different things to prepare us for uh, the, this country being, you know, hostile against black people. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I got older and growing up, particularly in Mansfield, Texas, which is pretty diverse ethnically, mm -hmm. um, socioeconomically, so on, so on and so forth, uh, being around predominantly white people, I realized that there was a contradiction in what my mom was saying and what I was actually seeing and experiencing. Um, when I graduated high school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Long story short, I ended up uh, joining a plumber's apprentice program, which is predominantly white. And so I'm working alongside these guys who come from all sorts of backgrounds, be it rural, urban, so on mm -hmm. and so forth. And it was a genuine camaraderie. Uh, there and so uh, I think my becoming a conservative was downstream of my being born again mm -hmm. uh, I was born again shortly after high school uh, and God literally changed me from the inside out and so the verse that comes to mind is that uh, in all things you do to do to the glory of God mm -hmm. and whenever I looked at how I vote my voting wasn't consistent with your values, my values. Yeah. And so, um, I began to read a lot of material, uh, that was recommended by friends of mine and, and ultimately woke up to, to conservatism. Um, and so young and naive learning all these, this, mm -hmm. this new and interesting things about conservatism, I decided that I was going to run for political office. So I ran for state representative and lost and, uh, just saw a lot of things in the local Republican Party that I wasn't pleased with, with regard to having effective tactics for uh, reaching people. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. 110 percent. Yeah. So I resolved to take steps back. Yeah. Uh, by that time, I started a, a plumbing company and I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to focus on my plumbing, focus on growing this business and doing what I can to to be a voice to some degree. Yeah. But my primary focus is my family. Yeah. Uh, one day, randomly out of nowhere in 2018, uh, I get a call from a man named Ryder. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryder and, Ansel. Ryder Ansel. Yeah. And he said, hey, we're doing this uh, documentary on black conservatives. We got your name uh, from a local Republican group. Do you mind sitting down for an interview? And that came through a voicemail. It took about a week for me to respond. So I finally agreed to sit down with these guys. And the rest is history. So. 
Incredible. Yeah. So let's talk about, and I'll start with you first, Chad, the inspiration for Uncle Tom one. And for those of you out there that have not seen the first uh, iteration, you, you really need to see this because it really is an, a powerful education about this thing called black conservatism and, you know, that side of the aisle. And in my monologue, I talked about this uh, Sonny uh, Hostin of The View who said that, you know, she doesn't understand black Republicans and it's, it's an oxymoron. Well, I think that what happened with Uncle Tom, one, you really broke that down and you really, you know, established a framework and a foundation of start understanding that historically. So what, what was the real inspiration once you met with Justin and you met with Ryder? What really, you know, was the hook that got you to say, hey, man, this is something I, I really want to be a part of. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Kent Charnig, and I'm the founder of El Paso County, Colorado Progressive Veterans. Don't worry, we're not crazy tree huggers, but we do have an amazing podcast talking about nothing but the military and veterans. Please check us out, epccpv.org. Thank you. Talk to you soon. It was the questions that Justin asked. Um, they weren't stupid questions. They were questions that really got to the heart of, of why I believe what I believe. And the thing that woke me up to conservatism was, was learning things that were, was purposely hidden from not only me as a black man, but me as an American. Mm. And so to learn real history, real raw history, uh, made me at first uh, upset, but then it made me realize just how great we have it in this country. And so when I was sitting in that interview chair and Justin was asking the questions he was asking, it was really kind of getting to the heart of a lot of the, the lies that we've been told. And I was happy to, to play a part of that because I saw the potential in this film and this project that they were working on to really kind of set the record straight. What That's, do you think is the biggest lie? The biggest lie. I, so I was born in 1990. Mm -hmm. And by the time I started going to high school, it was the early 2000s, 2005. And by that time, Howard Zinn, who I'm sure you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're aware of, his uh, interpretation of history was already showing up in public schools. And there's little subtle things that are said that is meant to instill in the minds of young people a spirit of bitterness against this country that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, you've heard it said that after the Constitution was ratified, a woman asked Benjamin Franklin, well, which do we have, yeah. a monarchy or a republic? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. And there are people who have deliberately played a role in seeing to it that Americans don't know how to keep their republic. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is is practiced in our, in our schools. And so I can't say that there's one thing, there's many things that we can be here all day talking about them, mm -hmm. but it was just the whole gamut of, yes. of how American children are educated in our schools to be bitter about this country that we live in, to be, uh, uneasy about this country that we live in and feel that the system needs to be changed 
destroyed and something else needs to be put built in its place. And so that's, yeah, that, that's our Well, it's, it's interesting because you bring up a, a great point in that when I hear people say America's a democracy, you really just want to say drop and give me 50 push-ups because they don't understand what it means to live in a constitutional republic and how the constitution is a restraining document on the powers of the federal government. And really the power in this country exists at the state and, and to the people at the local level. And, you know, we have got to do a better job of educating. And right now, I think what the big lie is the indoctrination uh -huh. that is out there is not just the revision of history, it's a complete eradication of history. And I think that's what you have really tackled uh, Justin with the Uncle Tom series. And so let's talk about your inspiration for doing Uncle Tom. Let's talk about, you know, you showing up on the doorstep there of my house and I'm saying, who is this guy? But, you know, just the same as Chad, you come in and I was just blown away by the depth of questions that you were asking because you weren't superficial. It showed that you really cared about this issue. You really wanted to get to the bottom of understanding black conservatism. Well, I think what Uncle Tom one showed me, which I, I, I felt, but what it confirmed for me is that black conservatives have always been here. Mm -hmm. And there's not, I mean, what's really cool about the, the first film is that you have, you know, your blue collar, you have your construction, you have a farmer, you have a, you know, a lieutenant colonel, you have commentators, you have politicians, you have entrepreneurs, you have young, you have old, you have male, you have female. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very American film. The The fact is, is that I've been told through this subtle indoctrination that I'm a bad person and that my ancestors are bad people. And what I started realizing is that the way that we're taught and the way the media works is that you're told things that don't line up with reality. Mm -hmm. I'll give an example. One of my, my uncles, his father was a uh, Pentecostal preacher. And he would tell me when they were young in the 50s and 60s, they would drive around Louisiana and Arkansas and his dad would preach at black churches and vice versa. And so for him, that's that was like a unique uh, experience because he's put he's putting that against what's coming through the TV and the newspapers where everybody's racist and everyone's pitted against each other and I really think that this is still working on even people that agree with us they don't understand that there is a, a different reality from what we've lived and I could tell you in my heart that I never felt negatively towards a person because of the color of their skin mm -hmm. I mean it's it's almost crazy that we believe this and what sparked it for me, like I said, was seeing a conservative like Herman Cain run for president literally three years after we had all been guilted into voting for Barack Obama because we were going to get past this. This yeah. uh, supposed to be a great transformation yes. for the country. Yeah. Well, I had just come out of making a documentary about illegal immigration, so my ears were very tuned into the rhetoric about just the immigration angle so i did not support barack obama early on mm -hmm. like this this is you know i wasn't you know fully educated in marxism and all the you know i wasn't where i am now but i could tell like something wasn't right yeah. and i could tell that you just had to get on board and i've always rejected if if everyone goes with the with the flow i always have 
by the grace of God, been able to like step back and mm-hmm. like, whether it's just rebellious nature or whatever, I've always been able to like not get sucked into that. So three years later, you have Herman Cain. Well, this man is a Southern black from Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta, yeah, Georgia. Yeah, my home. Um, you know, very you know educated, rocket scientist, entrepreneur, yes. like everything American. Yet he was rejected. He was, and and I saw what the media did to him, and that's when it was like, okay, that confirmed the hypocrisy. It it basically completely discredited, uh, whatever you want to call them, the left, the Democrats, whatever that, like just dis- discredit that. And so I was, you know, and then I think whenever I saw the Trump campaign and I saw how much they were calling him a racist man, but I also saw a lot of support coming from the black community overwhelmingly and so there was this this disconnect that i was picking up on yeah you know i remember in charlotte north carolina when president trump stood there and basically challenged the black community he said what do you got to lose Mm -hmm. i mean you've been going along with these guys 99.9 percent of the time and look at your communities look at your homes look at look at all of these fundamental values that you say you believe in when you go and you're jumping and shouting hallelujah on sunday but then what happens Monday through Saturday? And you're right, he was absolutely disparaged for saying that, but he was completely right. right. And when you go back and you look at the support to historical black colleges and universities, black entrepreneurship and all of these things, that didn't happen under Barack Obama, criminal justice reform. That right. didn't happen after, under yeah. Barack Obama, which is completely different from this bail reform that we have now. And so, you know, I think you really struck a chord in saying that there's something here that we really need to look at with with Uncle Tom one. Now, how did you pull together that incredible cast of people? Because I mean, other than present company, you have a who's who well, in, I, in the black conservative movement. And you, you created an incredible rising star here. I think um I was very persistent. I mean, once it, I, I once I I put everything on the table to make that film. So there was really no going back. Mm -hmm. I had no safety net. I had shut down my company. Um, You know, I I had it all on the line. And that's called faith. Yeah. And I, and you know, I, I, I think my faith, my Christian faith has grown tremendously through this process because I saw y'all's boldness when I was interviewing you. I mean, I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't an atheist or anything when I started. I, I, my my faith came through politics. Mm-hmm. I I went to the political side, and then I would notice that a lot of conservatives have Christian values, and so that that was my uh, my walk. But you know, I think once I got um, you know just being persistent, but once I got to Jesse, that got me to Larry, and once I got to Larry, and you know, I could get to other people, and it gave me a little bit more credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but we worked on that film for oh, almost two years, yeah. so it was just being patient um, and going, you know, going where the doors open. I, I mean, we were we had met some kid in L.A. Um, he knew we were working on it, and then he emailed me, and that's how I got to you. You know, so it was just just being patient and and work. You know, casting our bucket where we were. That's like, right. And working that's right. working with what we working with what we had and. Um, I think it's obviously had God's hands on it and it was yeah. providential. I mean, I remember at the premiere walking out on the stage, I had had and it was just like 
why am I because it was you everyone was sitting in front of me and I was like why am I the guy up here doing this you know and it's obviously it's I think I got out of my own way and I you know I just let it happen and it was incredible thank you and so how did Uncle Tom one transform your perspective and your world worldview I guess um so the film in itself, it, it transformed my worldview because even though I contributed to it, to see the film on the screen and to see yourself and Larry and everybody else, I knew who you were. I, did, I wasn't familiar who some of the other people were because I just don't watch a lot of, of television and everything. And I, and I was familiar with uh, your congressional um, tenure. Um, but to see how Justin Ryder and Larry were able to, to put in one film all of these ideas, uh, it was, to me, it was refreshing because you, as a black conservative, when you're inundated with a narrative that's being pushed by the media, that black people are supposed to think this way. Black mm -hmm. people are oppressed. Monolithic. Monolithic, we're mm -hmm. oppressed every day. We have a grievance against America. We have an ax to grind. That's what's constantly being pushed and, and and if you're not careful you begin to believe that and so to see the the film uh, put together in that way and to see all of the black people who on social media and, and, and other places who are beginning to wake up as a result of that film uh, it was just refreshing and it, and it, and it gave me a, a sense of hope that you know the narrative is, is beginning to lose its its way if you will so well i will tell you and and i've shared this before but I think the most masterful stroke in Uncle Tom one, you know, it's all black and white, except for one portion where it's in color. Right. And it was celebrating that traditional nuclear family in the black community. I mean, that was just stark. I mean, my wife and I, we were sitting there at the premiere, not too far away from here in South Lake. Uh, we were just, that really drew us in because we've got to get back to those days, because I think that that has been the the reason for such a downfall and the rise of drugs and and crime and you know black on black murders and you know murdering our, our unborn children in the black community. So let's talk about the lessons learned from Uncle Tom one because you you got success. It was received great accolades and you can talk a little bit about that. And so obviously without a doubt you saw that. We got to take it to the next level. So what was the mindset? Because in the military, after battle, you have, you know, the after action review because you got to learn the lessons learned from whatever engagement you're in. So what were the lessons learned from Uncle Tom one? Start with you, Justin. I'll go to chat. Well, I think um, I wasn't expecting it to be successful. And I think just where I was in life, I, because I let go of that and I was just trying to do good work, uh, I had no idea. I wasn't thinking about what it was going to be i was just thinking i was living in the moment and i was mm -hmm. you know trying to you know go with work wake up and yeah. work a day and you know that's your that's your fulfillment you're in the 25 meter target yeah right? that's your yeah. fulfillment and so you know i couldn't believe it and you know i enjoyed it i enjoyed the um the reaction i enjoyed i mean we had endless emails we had people all around the world discovering it and you know so I guess the the what I'm trying what I tried to learn is I enjoyed that but I also wanted to keep some humility mm -hmm. and not get swept up in something um and I think the providence between with Chad and I's friendship um and what drew me to him 
in the film is out of everyone that was in the film, most of the people in the film were prestigious or had some sort of following. Um, whether it be social media or being on television or, you know, what, what have you, everyone was, had some sort of, of history. Whereas Chad was, had, was living out the principles that everyone in the film was fighting for. Mm -hmm. And when I interviewed you, you gave me a copy of Up From Slavery. Never read it. I read that while, and that changed my life. It really did. I read it twice, back to back. And I kind of saw this similarity in what Chad was doing. And so it drew me to him. And then as our, you know, and I think we were kind of in it together because, you know, out of everyone, we had never gone, we had never really had a lot of attention put on us. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of bonded us together in that moment. And the phone calls became more frequent. We we started, you know, hanging, hanging out more. And, you know, when you hang out with people that are faithful and, and, and have, you know, it rubs off on you, yes. you know, iron sharpens iron. It does. And, yeah. like, you know, Chad never was seeking any of this. There was something about his humility and something about that that drew me to that of like. And I think that's really if you want to say what I what was the success of Uncle Tom with everything was that we were really showing the the fruit through it wasn't it was it was it was a man who is living it out and that really is where we all start that's our goal right is to yeah. and so um i think that you know i learned you know to to be you know to be faithful and to be humble and 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 and, and stay with that and to realize that it's really not me uh doing to not you know to give to give thanks to god for you know choosing me to be part of this you know no, I, don't, I mean, I think you know it's. We joke about it all the time, but there's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a plumber from Mansfield and a, you know, a carpenter's kid from Mesquite, Texas. I know that, that yeah. are, but you know, who were the disciples? That, that's right. And, and, and who was? I mean, what makes Booker T yeah. the greatest intellectual is that he woke up every morning at five in the morning and put an axe in his hand and he built a university. That's right. Not with his words, but with his sweat as well. Absolutely. And so there's something biblical about. Um, of being these blue collar kids that are, you know, being used for, you know, God's glory. Okay. What was the lesson learned for you from Uncle Tom one? I think the lesson learned for me uh, and just taking this idea into part two was there's tends to be a disconnect for what one might think people are ready for and what people are actually ready for. Uh, the reason why Uncle Tom was so well received is because people knew that there was a ruse. People knew that there was uh, something going on that wasn't quite right mm -hmm. with regard to the way black people are painted and framed in this country, uh, specifically by the mainstream media. And so to see that, wow, there is a, uh, a different way of looking at things, people were ready for that. And so going into part two, which I know isn't your question, but going into mm -hmm. to that, um, it gave us permission in a sense to raise the bar yeah. uh, to trust that people are ready for uh, a, a bigger truth yeah. than what we were able to offer in part one. Well, it couldn't have come at a, a more critical and important time. It's crazy. Uh, and, and I think that that's one of the things that on the conservative side, we don't do a good job of is trying to look in this chess match against the progressive socialist Marxist left and figure where they're going to go. 
and beating them to that punch. That's right. kind of a little Sun Tzu yeah. in there. Uh, we're always reacting, mm -hmm. and we never put them on their heels. Mm -hmm. And and I remember one of the things that, you know, we had that clip of Al Sharpton and Uncle Tom one, and he was asked about it, and, you know, he kind of just did the Pontius Pilate and tried to step away and wash his hands of That's what we have to do more of. We mm -hmm. have to be more so on the offense and not allow them to dictate the narrative. Absolutely. which is without a doubt, I think, what you all have established in Uncle Tom 1. So now, where can they, where can people see Uncle Tom 1 uh, it's, still? Right um, it's, on Am it's on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and you know any streaming. It's on Salem now, okay. um, YouTube, Google. Okay. So anywhere you can rent, but it is it is streaming free on Amazon Prime still. Do you still have a good viewership of it? Kind I of? think so. Yeah. You know, I really don't, pay much attention yeah. to it you know um i think so i mean we still get we still get people that reach out to us and you know every now and then i'll i'll jump online and see what's happening and mm -hmm. so the reviews keep coming in and people are still debating it and it's either a one star or five star <laughs> there's no in between <laughs> well you could probably associate that with their philosophy <laughs> of governance it's uh, funny it's like yeah. we're so divided it's like you know but not, you know what it's truth yeah and you know as it says in the bible the truth will set you free mm -hmm. but for some people the truth will convict their spirit definitely and so i think you're seeing both that so now da, 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 uncle tom too i mean where was the start point what was the vision what i mean you've had the success you've kind of opened the door mm -hmm. and now you want to come through the door so give us the understanding what's the mindset behind uncle tom too we knew we 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 weren't done so basically in the aftermath of uncle tom one uh a lot of things were happening uh, a lot of screenings and people just you know we just had this things that we weren't prepared for a crescendo yeah well. it just it just happened yeah. and so chad and i began discussing like obviously this thing's alive now because mm. um, you know when you're in the moment you think you're going to complete the film and then you'll move to the next film and so we started talking and um, I believe he came over for dinner one night on a Friday and then Saturday morning I called Chad and I was like, what do you think about maybe coming on board full time and seeing what happens? And I think within, you know, by that Wednesday or so, like he, he's, he wanted to do that. And so we really didn't know where we were, we were going. Um, we thought maybe we'd do a show or some sort of curriculum and we just started working and then eventually it's like well i'm a filmmaker i know how to do that and larry was kind of leaning towards like why don't we just do another film and so we just started doing that and there was a couple people that we didn't get in the first film um vody bacham was mm. brought to me by my brother at the end of part one and then chad came in first thing he's like what do you think about vody bakum i was like yes that, that's somebody mm -hmm. and so we just started going and then as people were coming in to interview i would interview a little bit chad would interview a little bit we were kind of learning together and then it became you know as the information was was unraveling chad really just started getting into this research mode very organically and started devouring books and the interviews got a lot more interesting and and really i mean i would say like it's been a whooping because there wasn't a whole lot of research done on part one because i was interviewing the personalities taking their stories 
taking the moments that felt mm -hmm. good and weaving those together. And I called it an oral history. Yes. Because it was like, okay, this is, you know, so this is, whereas on this one, we really... Oh, you guys did a deep dive. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it, it just never dive. really ended. I mean, I think we're a year, <laughs> we're like a year late, which we've, we have enough material for two films right now. Um, so, yeah, it, ha it all happened very organic. And, you know, it's it's evolved and, and, and it's been a, a, a long road. And eventually we just had to come out with a film. And so we took a sword out, we cut the thing in half and we packaged it. And it's like, because we, this, you know, we, we could have gone on forever. Yeah. I feel like we've opened something up. Yeah, you open up a can of whoop, you we, know what. We, we <laughs> did. And, you know, and it's really grown me spiritually because you, you I think that, you know, I understand evil a lot better now. Um, I I understand Satan's handiwork a lot better now, and you know, so it, it's it's been a, it's been a heck of a ride. I'm 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 feeling very elated right now because we have something to show. Um, but I am I do feel a little bit exhausted because yeah. I mean we've probably we put thousands and thousands of hours into this. No, and, and you can tell. I mean. You know, I sat down, you sent me the link and I watched it, you know, last week I was in a hotel room, you know, for the uh, Texas GOP convention and I was just captivated, riveted, just blown away how you all were able to pull together an immense amount of information and how you tied it back into the black community and, you know, building off of what you saw in Uncle Tom, you know, what changed in the black community? What philosophically changed? And I think that's what you hit the nail on the head with in Uncle Tom too. Well, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you captured that um, because that's, that was the goal. The goal was to acknowledge that there was a shift and to identify what caused that shift mm -hmm. and to learn about this rich history. Cause again, I, I brought up earlier in the, in the interview that I was born in 1990. Mm -hmm. And so by that time, uh you're you're kind of born into this this current that the narrative is already established is already put into place and you're part of it and there's such a detachment from mm -hmm. the way things were uh specifically when as you point out in the film uh black america it it wasn't uncommon that you know we were part of the church we were you know all about our faith and so to see this kind of disconnect and the results of that disconnect mm -hmm. um it, it had a lot of damaging effect and so to to be able to to put that on the screen and to explain that and articulate that in a palatable way i think is huge no it was and it reminds me out of isaiah where it talks about the time will come when people will call good evil and evil good and that's what i've seen happen in the black community so Let's talk about it uh, from this perspective, because I think this is what you really pulled out. And we kind of touched on it a little bit in Uncle Tom 1, but you guys really expanded on it in Uncle Tom 2. And that is the juxtaposition, the philosophical conflagration between Booker T. Washington on one side and W.E.B. Du Bois on the other side. So let's kind of get into that and talk about how here's a man that was a slave mm -hmm. as opposed to a guy that was born into you know wealth wealth mm -hmm. <laughs> and how they matriculated through their respective uh growth 
And one guy believes in that you've got to show that you can be a productive member. And that is the key to economic empowerment. And this other guy was backed by the white progressive socialists and created the black intelligentsia. So who wants to take that and talk a little bit about that schism that, that we see? Because I think that is the profound jumping point in this documentary that I hope everyone will recognize. The reason it was necessary to, to, to dive deep into that juxtaposition is because if you turn on NPR or any of the state uh, funded news organizations, the narrative that they put out is you have to celebrate men like W.E.B. Du Bois because these are the people who are the father of black intelligence. Mm -hmm. And these are the ones who were uh, who are crying out in the wilderness and who are who, who began this kind of reverberation uh, that caused black people to stand up for their rights. And so for me to to actually look into Booker T or to, to W.B. Du Bois, did I say Booker T. Washington to begin with? Yeah, you, we got it. I'm tracking. Yeah. And I can run that back if you want. But um, to actually look into W.E.B. Du Bois, the man who we're told by the liberal media is the father of black intelligence and to see who is behind him and mm -hmm. see that they aren't actually black. Mm -hmm. it, it tells you everything you need to know about who's pulling the strings for what we know today as black culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's ultimately what I wanted to get to and during the research is we are told whether it be on Amazon Prime, whenever you go to their movie category, lift black voices. Whether you go to Target, they have their, their black section of books. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to be their catalog of what they call black thought. And so everywhere you go, you're being told what black thought is. Yeah. But to pull back the curtain and to see that the folks who are uh, saying that this is black thought aren't actually black. In fact, they aren't they don't even share the same values as our black ancestors, mm -hmm. namely that of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. These are people who are more in line with what the secular humanists. They're secular humanists. Absolutely. And so their ideology does not benefit black people. Hell, it doesn't benefit anybody for that matter. But it's something that people like W. E. B. Du Bois bought into. And so for that reason, it was necessary to really articulate to the audience, this is who W.E.B. Du Bois was. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take a look at Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. What was the net result of his teachings? Well, absolutely. What were the gains of his teachings? And so to actually look at these two people and define who he was, define who he was, what was the net result of his teachings? What was the result, net result of his teachings? The results are clear. And so to then take that information and, and look at the history of America in a larger scale, whether it be any of these events that were told were a high point for Black America, mm -hmm. be it the Civil Rights Movement, be it uh, the, the election of Barack Obama and the ideology he held. Um, understanding Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois gives you context for understanding all these other yeah, Absolutely. And, and, uh, and I think that when you do that, you, you look at the, you will know them by the fruits of their labor. Yes. And so you look at Booker T. Washington and Negro Business League. Mm -hmm. You look at Booker T. Washington, Education, Entrepreneurship, Self-Reliance. You look at Booker T. Washington, Tuskegee, Normal Industrial Institute. You see George Washington Carver. You see the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, okay. And now we look at the other side 
and we just see rabble rousing and protesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and that is what and we, fundraising and fundraising. And you see people that you know the the puppet masters back there like Mary Overington, Mary White, White Overington, White Overington, who was one of the uh, white uh, progressive socialists, and a couple of others that created the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of the Colored People, were, was founded and established by three white progressive socialists. And you know who was on the board for the NAACP? John Dewey. There you go. And then... That's another layer. Yeah. And then they say, okay, who's going to be the face that can sell it? Well, we'll get this guy here. And we still see this happening. Now, I will tell you that I don't know where you found it, but it blew my socks off to see W.B. Du Bois hamming it up with Mao Zedong. Where did you find it? I mean... Uh, I believe we we got into uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois archive, um, and we, we found that. It's not like they're really... They're very proud of it, you know? And it's very weird. That was 1959. That would be a weird time to be in China. That's two years before I was born. Yeah, but it's, you know, you know post-Korean yeah, War. Yeah, post-Korean War and, and everything. And this Literally is- our enemy. Yeah. And, and that goes very deep into the civil rights movement as well there china had their hands in the um friction in america um then and now yeah you know it's the when we were the reason why we spent so much time with the uh the booker t and du bois scene because you know we had so much material Mm -hmm. and you kind of you're getting all these like mic drop revelations every day and you want to just give it everything then they get information overload they do yeah but i think in part one because we at least introduced those characters but now it's like well hold on because for me what uncle tom 2 really is about is god versus man do you do you follow god or do you follow man if if i was just that's what i would say the film is about and when it when we zoom into black america they are the the example of both of those worldviews mm-hmm. and as we discovered uh all this footage that's been buried like mountains of footage of us of black south that you never see in hollywood i agree and prosperity um nuclear families happiness just the body language yeah. just the body language the, the spirit is there and the reason why we we constructed the scene like we did is because this is the fruit of Booker T. Washington. There is this is what he created uh, a Christian man um, who who lived a Christian life and followed a Christian lifestyle and and built something, and that was the Black South. And it's just strange to me, like finding all this footage. Like, why is it? That you have mountains and mountains of footage of of Black America owning businesses and and you know Fourth of Fourth of July parades everywhere yeah. like they're just why is that not shown the only footage that we're shown I was I'm a little older than Chad but growing up in Number public school both, yeah. <laughs> but what's the footage that we see oh, of absolutely. Black America it's 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 German shepherds it's water hoses um, it's oppressed people. Uh, helpless people, sad people, poor victims. people, victims. And so for me, it's like, it just, and I did not know anything about Booker T. Washington until Uncle Tom won, until you 
talked about him and gave me his book. How do I not know? I mean, I would say he's in the top five Americans to ever live. I agree. Like literally one of the greatest men. You cannot read up from slavery. And I mean, (laughs) I kind of want to stop researching him because I don't want to find anything. But it's like, my goodness, like, how is he not celebrated? He is the epitome of the choice between victor or victim. Mm -hmm. He could have very easily chose to be a victim, but no. And he, without a doubt, is one of the great intellectual orators and educators Amazing this country has produced. But yet, what we find is that this story, this history, is buried. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about Booker T is that, you know, he's called an Uncle Tom because he, he kowtows the white people or what have you. He just didn't see race. Like, a lot of the, you know, white philanthropists helped fund Tuskegee and Absolutely. other schools. But the students built it. But that's okay. Yeah. Because white people, you know, were the abolitionists with the black yes. people. White people and black people fought together in every American war. Yep. There is no divide. You know, whereas the the boy, he's putting blackness in front of everything and yeah. making it about black. But who? But he has sinister, deceptive white well, people behind him. Well, he was focused him. on the entrepreneurial success and that... You know, we, we, we got the short end of the stick, but this is how we can catch up by developing our own productivity and entrepreneurial prowess with businesses and things of that nature. So that's how you show that you're equal. Now, Du Bois and his, you know, mantra was that you just force mm-hmm. the equality. And I think that's what we still see today. And that breeds contempt and friction. I Absolutely. Think the, I think the boy had a lot of guilt. I mean, you see white guilt now, even black, I mean, even black kids today, a lot of times, if they, if they come from a middle class or upper middle class family, mm-hmm. they almost have to lean into it. Like they feel guilty that they're not from, they're not poor. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. You know, it that's, makes you wonder if he had had the experience growing up that Booker T. Washington had, would he have had a different perspective? If you look at Booker T. and the amount, I would say 30 years, you saw a complete transformation from from the time that Tuskegee machine really took off. Mm -hmm. 30 years. That's about what any uh, immigrant group. I mean, if you you just say, okay, slavery's over, if you liken blacks Mm -hmm. to the Vietnamese or the Mm -hmm. Koreans or anybody else, it's like so the, he understood that, hey, we got to get going, you know. And I think when you read it from slavery, you really understand that he was okay knowing that he wasn't going to sit in the shade of, of his tree. Yeah. Like he, he was very similar to our founding fathers. He, he saw. He had a vision. He did. And, and it's a biblical vision. Yep. It's a bi- biblical it's a vision. It even gave us the Commodores. It did. Yeah. From Tuskegee, Alabama. Right. It did. It was very bold, too. Yeah. Because it's like, sure, you can wallow in the fact that you're former slaves and that your parents sure. are former slaves. Sure, you can say, woe is me and sing that tune. But he said, nope, you're going to brush your teeth. You're going to come to class Absolutely. with a clean shirt. You're going to work. Uh, and even to the extent that he was getting letters from some of these people's parents. You know, we, we worked in the field long enough. I want my, my children to learn the books. Like, nope, your children will learn to work. Absolutely. And to read. Right. Absolutely. And so, uh, and so he was, was very matter of fact in his approach to what it takes to accrue any degree of success in this country. Uh, and so I feel like, for me, you asked a question earlier, what was the lesson learned? Uh, with Booker T. Washington, 
um, the lesson learned is like we have to, as black conservatives, be real about what it takes to be successful. Yeah. Especially in a time where we're told that white privilege keeps you down. White privilege mm -hmm. means that the white man gets the opportunity and you kind of get left in the dark mm -hmm. uh, to say no. Um, in, in America, you have the opportunity to quality of opportunity. Yes, you have the equality opportunity and we live in a very mobile society. It's it's on you to to, to take advantage of that opportunity. as opposed to the quality of outcomes. And, and far too often yeah. what happens is and there's even black conservatives, I'm ashamed to say, who tries to, to deal with black people with kid gloves in such a way that if I if I pamper you and I finesse you, I can manipulate you into believing what I believe. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you have to tell the truth and you have to do so boldly. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about, you know, one of the examples, um, because you hear this this line, you know, black people have never owned anything in America and, and we've never had anything. And, you know, just recently we saw, you know, the 100 years since Tulsa. You guys brought out a great story about Tulsa in that everyone focuses on what happened that day, but no one focuses on the fact that Tulsa, Black Wall Street, was rebuilt. Mm -hmm. And Shortly so, after the riot. Yeah. And so, illuminate us on that. Well, there's a lot more to that story. Um, there, there were people behind the scenes of that that aligned with the Marxist worldview that we cover in the mm -hmm. film. But what we found the story to be was even even if we do go with the the their their narrative that that white people hated black people they were jealous of these black people um they wanted they wanted to destroy it they they had white people had this hatred for black people even if that was true which i don't believe it was but let's just say it was the black community in tulsa rebuilt bigger and better in three to four years and so what it what does that story say? Well, it says that black people had not been demoralized, that black people had faith in God, they had strong families. And a determination. A determination. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have a, it hadn't even been, it didn't occur to people, especially black people, that somebody was there to take care of you. It just wasn't even on the table. Um, so that for me was the, the story and what's interesting is if you look at any story on, um, you know, if anyone does a story about Tulsa and about the Tulsa massacre that they call call it, the footage that they're using of before the fire was shot after the rebuild. Now, we know that because we found the raw film reels and the, the pastor who shot those film reels had the plates you know, the, the foresight yeah. to, to date every roll of film. Wow. So it wasn't even until we, we, we had found the film like, oh my gosh, look at all this black success. Look at, you know, it's confirming that. But then when it got to the Tulsa part, it's like, that's 1925 and they're having a parade with American flags. What year did Tulsa happen? 1921. And then it just unraveled. Like the whole thing fell apart. It's all a lie. And we didn't get into, you know, just for time, and I'll let Chad explain, beyond the fact that, that they were rebuilt it, there was... Some foul play. I'll, I would ex tell the story yeah. because I think it will... I mean, it elaborates on it. We didn't. We chose not to do that in this film because of time. There are other things that we want to get to, but I think it's an interesting story to talk about. No, for sure. So the narrative goes that 
uh, Greenwood District uh, was a business district for black folks. Mm -hmm. uh, there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you had the oil fields, both blacks and whites worked at oil fields. Mm -hmm. And as far as going home and having a business district to go to, to spend leisure time, to spend your money, to enjoy fine food, you had Black Wall Street, which was the district that all that happened. They had the best part of the land, we're told. And white people were very jealous of these black uh, Tolsons. And so they conceived a plan to go and burn it all down. And um, they saw the Dick Rowland incident on the elevator as their as their impetus. In, yeah, as their impetus. Yeah. And, and th this is our moment. Yeah. That's the narrative that we're, we're told. Um, if that were true, then after everything was burned down, white people would have came in, built up their community and moved in and occupied that space. And it would have been White Wall Street from that from that moment on. But that's not what happened. Uh, the reason why a white mob went to the jailhouse in the first place is that they were enticed to do so by a news article that was ran by the Tulsa Tribune. And the title of that article was Nab Negro for Raping White Girl. The man who wrote that article was a man by the name of Richard Lloyd Jones. Now, if you look into Richard Lloyd Jones, you'll find that this is a man who had connections to the Communist Party. Mm. Um, he would use the Tulsa Tribune to uh, incite racial animus and to get the KKK riled up uh, so as to harass black folks. Um, on the other side, you had a man who wrote for the black newspaper there in Tulsa. His name was A.J. Smitherman. He's a part of the NAACP. He was a civil rights attorney. And uh, him and Richard Lloyd Jones were secretly in cahoots with one another. And so he enticed this black mob to go down to the jailhouse to protect uh, Dick Rowland. And it was there where the scuffle took place. Now, the sheriff of Tulsa, uh, whenever the white mob showed up, he showed up. He came out and said, what are you guys doing here? They said, well, we want you to release Dick Rowland to us because these people were genuinely outraged by the newspaper article they 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 read. Um, and the sheriff said, we abide, we, we abide by the law here. I'm not going to release this man into your hands. Into a mob. We're not a mob rule. Yeah. We, we abide by the law here. And so the this, scuffle this took place outside. The riot happened. Um, reports today are mixed. Some say it was 300 deaths. Others say it was about 10 and everything in between. And so they can't even get their facts straight. Yeah. Uh, uh, A.J. Smitherman was indicted for inciting a riot because of the newspaper article that he that he uh, wrote. Um, Richard Lloyd Jones, because he was well-connected in Oklahoma, uh, he didn't get indicted, but everybody knew that he was also responsible for inciting yeah. the riot. Now, the question becomes, if your narrative is true, that these white racists uh, stormed Black Wall Street for no other reason than they hated Black folks. Um, my question is, by virtue of them not moving in and occupying that place, who else stood to gain from a riot taking place? White racists or communists? Because the thing is, communism seeks to take control by taking advantage of your plight and of your situation. Yeah. If I want to take control over you. If you're a man who believes in God and you own your own business, it will be very difficult for me to. Because That's why I have to deconstruct God. Yes. Why, why do you need me? 
you have your business so you can you can pay for anything you need you have your faith which makes you uh, uh confident which makes you uh, a man of self-control you're economically empowered you're economically empowered yeah, absolutely if i can sack your economic independence mm -hmm. then who else do you run to other you become than, economically dependent. Exactly. When you, and so it just so happens that the NAACP around this time were constantly spreading their propaganda in the South, trying to get blacks to join the ranks of the NAACP. As opposed to the Negro Business League. As opposed to the Negro Business League. We want you to, you know, don't you hate that the KKK is picking on you every day? And by the way, a lot of the lynchings that were recorded, those numbers were, were, were pumped in many instances, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so so when it comes specifically to Tulsa, uh, they're not really being honest about the connections that the people uh, had who incited that riot to mm -hmm. begin with. Well, that comes back to the deception and the question I asked you about what is the big lie out there? Yeah. And that continue, continues on to today, because when you sit back and you look at who are the people that are the masterminds behind Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. And you did an incredible job of looking at Patrice Cullors and where did she get this about Marx's training from? And you track that back to Mr. Mann. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you track Mr. Mann's history and you track Mr. Mann's history back to Saul and Linsky mm -hmm. and this infiltration that has come in. So it's still happening today. Yeah, the long story short of that is that people think it's inconceivable that is unfathomable that a group as sinister and conniving as communists would play both sides, would be would 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 play on the side of of inciting the KKK and and people who are just irrational to being bitter uh, toward blacks, and play the side of getting blacks and bitter toward whites, mm -hmm. and because because they seek to to gain in that destruction and in that chaos. Well, it's amazing because when I you know now you have those two groups mm -hmm. because I equate. KKK to Antifa mm -hmm. is the second domestic terrorist group that the, the Democrat Party has you know created and established. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Antifa, these are all a bunch of little white kids, yeah. even though they're wearing masks. I can tell. Same and thing. then you look at Black Lives Matter and you've got that that contingent. So they are playing in both camps to get both camps stirred up and they get them out there to once again deconstruct and undermine the fabric of this community, the black community and this this country as well. So coming back to what I talked about also, you know, blacks have never owned anything. Let's talk about Philip Payton. Yes. I mean, w when you understand the history of Harlem, and if you've ever been to the Netherlands, I mean, Harlem comes from the Dutch word, H-A-A-R-L-E-M, mm -hmm. -A -A -E because New York, that area was originally New Amsterdam right. because the Dutch were the first people there. Mm -hmm. So this was a white community, a white area. Yeah. So how does all of a sudden it transitions into this, what we come to know as Harlem, H-A-R-L-E-M. Tell the story of Philip Payton. Well, Philip Payton was a protege of Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. He was part of the Negro Business League. And it's people just don't really think about how and when Harlem became a black community. Mm -hmm. um, well, it happened in the, at the beginning of the 20th century and if it's back to that like that timeline like you started seeing the fruit of booker t washington and so not only did the south start you know improving uh drastically there you know you had this entrepreneurial spirit you had this confidence so you know you go up to new york and you're not seeing the world 
through you know the eyes of an ignorant former slave you're now educated and you're a businessman mm -hmm. and so we thought that was a really important story to tell because when you think of harlem it's it's you know you think of black america it's kind of like the mecca you know mm -hmm. and which we did not get into in this film, which we plan on getting into in great depths in the next film, um, is when you think of the Harlem Renaissance, when you think of the, the imagery that we show in the film mm -hmm. of clean streets, everyone's dressed to dressed the nines. Dressed to the nines. <laughs> Classy looking people. Yeah. I mean, nobody's worrying about gang violence yeah. or shooting. No, not at all. Respect. What's interesting about, the, if you look at the motion picture uh, footage from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, you had a lot of white patronage going into those clubs. Mm -hmm. And you had a lot of, you know, you know, very classy places that people wanted to go spend money at. Mm -hmm. And so the fruit of Booker T, once again, the fruit of Booker T that, 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 that built that classiness, we, we can see that, but no one ever connected that dot. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it was really, you know, which again, I don't want to know spoiler alerts, but it was really a lot of the thought and ideology that was birthed out of the Harlem Renaissance that really turned things in a bat in, into a, into a negative direction because they started uplifting the lower well you you did a great job of showing you know philip payton comes in and starts buying these buildings and then other black entrepreneurs come in buy these buildings right. and you get black businesses but then all of a sudden the matriculation and then the next thing you know you got adam clayton powell yeah that is there if, and, and his backing right. which we know where that came from well if you if you go back to tulsa for instance like there was an attempt to discourage and create that friction but the black community was so christian and so strong that it was going to take if you look at it it was going to take another 30 years before that thought process started changing whereas in new york you, it was a little bit it happened a, a decade maybe you know 15 years sooner than the south because you had this intellectual du Bois and these mm -hmm. east coast yeah, black intellectuals mm -hmm. that were basking in the sunlight of washington Right. Mm -hmm. So, and Chad can explain it better, but a lot of the children of the black bourgeoisie, the, 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 the blacks that had come from the South and, you know, applied their industrial educations mm -hmm. in an industrial city and became wealthy. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of wealth up there. These children then begin having the privilege to go to these expensive liberal universities. Yep. And that's where you get a lot of your Langston Hughes and your, you know, Jimmy Baldwin. And, and that guys. is always how it starts with these socialist communist movements mm -hmm. is the young intelligentsia on the college and university campus. Absolutely. It ain't a blue collar right. movement, no, you know, all. whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So let's then talk about this. You all have pretty much so established in, in this documentary that this is purposeful, mm -hmm. intentional. And the target has been, as you just articulated, going after the two things that I think made the black community strong, God and work ethic, mm -hmm. self-reliance, entrepreneurship and everything to, to, to break those down, you know, bringing in the secular humanism, making people more dependent. Is it too late? It's not too late no. um, because God is mighty. Yep. And the thing is, is like with the film we i'm not professing to be anybody's leader i'm not suggesting that you should uh 
adopt me as the the the, the role model that you should emulate. Uh, my goal is that people will turn to Christ. It is in turning to Christ and taking on that new spirit. Because the Bible says, like, you know, you must be born again. Mm -hmm. um, and what does it mean to be born again? That means to die of your natural life, of your natural parents, of your natural lessons that you've been learned, that you've learned up until this point, and to choose this day to put on uh, Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's him who teaches you to be confident. It's him who teaches you to practice self-control. It's him who teaches you uh, to have the wisdom uh, that comes only from God and not to rely on your on your own under, understanding. And it's mm -hmm. through that, for me at least, that I was able to uh, become my own man instead of always being paranoid about what the white man thinks or about, you know, this person trying to keep me down and that person trying to keep me down. And so I feel like the hope for the hope for black Americans or for any American for that matter, isn't to vote for a specific candidate, even though I think that there are candidates that you should vote for. It isn't to, uh, to, to, to do a certain thing other than to repent and turn to Christ. Because we demonstrate in this film that Black America was at its best and brightest when it trusted in God. And, and the family was strong. The family was at its strongest when we trusted in God. Because there is a, a, a natural result of that in your life. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. Mm hmm uh, but you can weather that storm. Well, that's what it says in John 16 and 33. There's going to be tribulation in the world would be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. But the message that's coming from the, the progressives, the socialists, the Marxists, the communists is that you can't overcome this. Mm -hmm. And you need us in order for you to have some semblance of a life and a livelihood. So now we have seen that they have effectively really have gotten into the, the that venerable institution in the black community called church. Right. And you show that through the civil rights movement yeah. with uh, some of the folks that they touched. You showed some incredible clips yeah. of Saul Alinsky and some of the manipulations that he was doing behind the scenes. How did you get that footage? Just working every day. I mean, we were digging and digging and... Um... The left hates you because <laughs> you're peeping their whole card, man. I mean, you yeah. really are. You know, it, it, I think we've, I mean, I, we found that in an archive somewhere and we were, we were, you know, it was just, again, it's just being patient and like not rushing it. Mm -hmm. um, for me personally, I've detached from social media and media as a whole. You know, I, I read something about uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams when they would go home. They just wouldn't read the newspaper. They would just walk around. They would, you know, work their fields. Yeah. And, and you think about, you know, what is what is changed in our culture is just constant inundation of mm -hmm. screens and, you know, instant information. And I can see how people react to, mm -hmm. you know, people will come to me like, did you hear what so-and-so, did you hear what Nancy put? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. That's going to be there whether I'm flustered about it or yeah. not. Um, well, they're trying to tap into the emotions. Yeah. And they're trying to get you to be reactionary. Mm -hmm instead of more so being intellectually engaged. I, I, I want to comment on like what you guys were just talking about, because for me, and uh, we showed this film to a friend the other night, and it was the greatest compliment. He said, this doesn't feel like a black film or about, this feels like an American film. Mm -hmm. And I think we spent a lot of time in the film 
talking about Marxism and talking about uh, Gramsci and gradualism attacking America at large. Mm -hmm. And then we zoom into to black America because, you know, it's a good microcosm yeah. to see. This, it is. Right? It is. Yeah. Black America was the the most the low hanging fruit. Yes. You know, you had you had a perfect oppressor oppressed dynamic there. But, you know, where we are right now is white America is just as demoralized as black America. There's really no difference. And if you look out, you know, like who's promoting these ideas and mm -hmm. like who's really burning the cities down, it's mm -hmm. a, it's, it's not, it's not just black America that's affected. America at large has Absolutely. been affected, you know? And so what I think that was really important. And we spent a long time kind of figuring out that balance of like, we have to tell America's story because black America is America's story. It is. It, they're not separate, you know, and they're, they've been, you know, and that's what, that's what was encouraging for me is to find all this film of parades. Black people love to have parades yeah. and they love the American flag yeah. and they love the Boy Scouts. And I know, they, you the pictures of the Boy Scouts. They're like veterans. The 20s I mean, and 30s. Veterans every war Absolutely. you had patriots yep. you know which i that's what one of my favorite parts of part one is when you're you know you're seen when you're talking about it's like you you know black americans have bled on this soil if you know and so i'm just really tired of the division mm -hmm. you know it's it's very clear to me that it that it's but that's why instead of talking about critical race theory i call this cultural marxism uh -huh. it is because marxism is all about division it is and and that's what i think we see happening more than anything else and it's very very intoxicating and it's, it is. it's very in it's if you don't have a foundation and you know i know that there's conservative people that don't profess faith and don't have that and maybe they don't need it but if you don't have that foundation um marxism is very enticing and very intoxicating and it, it you does. know because it just twists it if i'm asking you a question mm -hmm. because you were a congressman in florida yep and you were the republican chair here in texas yep and you ran for uh governor mm-hmm what are some of the things that you've seen on the left, uh, the lies and the deception to try to play to people's emotions so as to cast you as the boogeyman or this this person who's antithetical to black people? Well, that's the thing is that the left does not deal with facts and truth that what the left has to do is they have to go after you and denigrate and disparage you, whatever. It's just the same as Joe Biden coming up saying you ain't black if you don't vote for me or this person on the view that says i don't understand black republicans it's an oxymoron and that's the battle that we fight it's a delegitimization of you uh if you're black and you don't get on their little you know wagon and go off to happy utopia you know economic dependency land you know if you're the person that is you know came up from slavery men mentally have escaped their 21st century economic plantation you're the biggest enemy that they have out there and they want to squelch that voice and so that's what i see happening but yet i see people awakening you know to this i remember when i went down there was a uh, hispanic church in del rio that showed uncle tom uh one and i said to the hispanics there i said you're next mm. okay because that's why they're flooding illegals in here because they need the next dependency class because they worn us out. We're, we've been stuck on what, 12, 13% yeah. population for like two decades. Thanks, we ain't going anywhere. Thanks to Margaret Sanger. Yeah, Margaret <laughs> Sanger, and also what they are vomiting in our communities where we're killing each other yes. off. 
And so they need to have, you, you want to talk about a real replacement theory? You know, they're looking at this illegal immigration to replace the black vote that they see jointly. And furthermore, if they lose about 10 to 15 percent of support in the black community, it's Katie barred the door mm. for them. So, you know, what we just saw recently happen down in Congressional District 34 with Myra Flores winning in South Texas, a congressional district that has not been Republican for 150 years. That's freaking them out. Yeah because that is one of those blue bases. Now, the other blue base that we have to do, we got to get into the urban centers. Uh -huh. You know, right now, Dallas has one of the highest homicide rates in the uh -huh. United States of America. Yeah. Austin, Texas is another. And so we have got to go back in, restore that sense of God, faith, family, and that's how you get to freedom. So that that's the challenge we have. And that's why I'm just thrilled uh -huh. about Uncle Tom too coming out. Because again, it could not be happening at a greater time. Last couple of questions. How many iterations did you go through to get to where you are today? Oh, okay. yeah, come on. I mean, I, I think I mean, people, people need to understand that this is not yeah. something that you just had a brain fart on. Yeah. I mean, you really labored with this because I've been there with you. Yeah. And, and I saw the very first cut and what I, I see now is final is 360 degrees yeah. away from what you started with. So yeah. how many iterations have you been? I would, I think there's been 17 cuts of the film. Wow. And a lot of different variations of those. We, we really did spend a lot of time with this and we did, I mean, we labored on this and I would say that we had to, we had to go learn the material, mm -hmm. you know, and this is heavy lifting. It is. And you know, again, like <laughs> we, so I tell, you know, our investors and our distributors, because, you know, we, we thought that we were going to be done with this film last September. And I tell them, well, hey, you know, like we are late, but we've got a whole bunch more material. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like we had to go down the rabbit hole uh, in order to make the film. So and it's just part of the process, you know, yeah. it's just part of it. Like you, you have to you have to learn the material. And again, what's different from this one versus part one is part one was a personal story. I was taking everybody's story. It was that oral history. It was the oral history where this one is like, no, we're going to we're going to connect some dots and we're going to figure this thing out. Well, what you really you you lend credibility and you validate what we were talking about in Uncle Tom one. Yes. That's what you're really doing. There are a couple things that we that we, we missed, but what I, you know, because particularly where what we've learned about the civil rights movement and a lot of a lot of that history is it, for me, it shows how deceptive and, and how um, how we've all been told, told, we've you been know, duped. and it's like, I think that one of the, the, the strongest um, advantages that Marxism, communist, whatever you want to call them, is that, you know, humans don't want to admit that they're wrong. Mm. And so sometimes it's like, you know, people will double, triple down because that pride within them, mm -hmm. you know, again, you know, faith in faith in God. Well, you know, kills you of that. But uh, Sir Winston Churchill said that socialism is the creed of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you see happening. And that's why they have to use the 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 fear the intimidation the coercion mm -hmm. and ultimately violence because no one's going to accept this and they have to erase they have to erase your history they have to because if you don't know where you came from you don't know where you are mm -hmm. and they're going to determine 
where you're going to go, which is why you got the 1619 project yeah, yeah. and everything, which again stokes those fires in the community. And it's just, it's just subtle things in school. It's like you just start oh, yeah. to accept that, you know, George Washington was a slave owner, and that, that these little things just start getting pounded in your head. And yeah, you, right. you this, keep doing, you keep doing, you keep doing. Yeah, and it's and, repetitive. And what's funny is a lot of young people they think they're rebelling and bucking against the system but they're exactly where they're they're exactly where they're meant to be it's like the music you're listening to the films you're watching you know social media Mm -hmm. it's all like there's nothing the matrix yeah there's nothing there's nothing rebellious about where you're at you you know you think you're being rebellious but this is a big red pill chad no, I mean, one of the, because you said they use the intimidation, they use this, yeah. they use that. I think one word that you left out is they use amiability as well. Hmm. Uh, that is to appeal to familiar language and symbols that mm-hmm. uh, you as an American or as a conservative can get behind. Mm-hmm. And once they get into your good graces, they begin to slowly but surely oh, yeah. manipulate your worldview in such a way that you're now seeing things the way that they see them. You're now uh, you're, you're now antithetical to the very things that have made America great. To How can with. you go into the black community, mm-hmm. a community that is faith-based mm-hmm. and, you know, Bible-based, and it says in Deuteronomy 30, 19, you know, God sets before us life and death, choose life so that you and your future generations shall live. But all of a sudden they come in with women's choice, right, right to choose. They're very good at the manipulation of language. And you're right, we just fall right along with it because, well, yeah, I guess you should hmm. have the right, but we're not talking about what you're really choosing. They use storytelling, they use emotionalizing. Yes. And the thing is, as Christians, we know, in First John it says to test every spirit mm-hmm. to see if it's of God, because there are false prophets among you. Yep. Now, what does a false prophet do? They they say, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this, I'm with you on that, I believe this, I believe mm-hmm. that. And then slowly but surely, they gradually get you to come over to their side because mm-hmm. you, they begin to kind of chip away at certain things that we believe. And all of a sudden, your your theology or your worldview uh, it becomes a little bit less form. and less and less fundamental, if that yeah. makes sense. I think my hope for this film, particularly as it relates to people who are within our camp, is that it would pry them from those preconceived notions that they have bought into by the cultural Marxists. Mm-hmm. There are things that we as conservatives believe that have that we bought into, narratives that we bought into, that is packaged by our political and faith enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we buy into them. And then because of that, we are susceptible to the next thing that comes on comes along in the name of the social justice movement and, and the thing is that when you talk about the false prophets and that comes back to second timothy chapter four where you have them out there tickling ears and preaching these narratives that uh has nothing to do with the word of god they have co-opted many pastors yeah yeah in the black community and that has always been a very well elevated position you know all pastors right now i mean there's there's a lot of our brothers that are that are falling for this it's not just in the black church and and i think you know that's why as a christian it is your responsibility to stay in the word yep because it's it's your job to you know the, the the pastor has a role he does but he is not 
Jesus. No, not, you got to keep them straight. You do. You got to test those spirits. Which is, which is, yeah. So it's, it's. I think that's why um, staying in the Word is very, very important. And you know, and then reaching out to those pastors with love and be like, I think you're, you know, and you got to yeah, fellowship. Yeah, you got to, you got to talk Go, through two it. Two or three brothers, and you know, yeah. say, hey, come on, pastor. You know, I'm, I'm here to profit. I up. think that that's going to happen a lot yeah. with this film. Yeah. Because I'm thinking that there's going to be a lot more friction even within the conservatives because I think that this film, even though we held back a lot because we did go down the rabbit hole, we held back a lot. Mm -hmm. We were very consciously trying to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. I think that there's going to be a lot of a lot of tough discussions within conservative Christian circles that that need to happen. Yep because of this film and we're starting to see, we're starting to see that how people are reacting to it um so i'll be i'll be very curious to see good. you know what happens but there's conversations that that need to be had good my only uh, request for people who want to watch this film is that you know try to be objective when you're watching it especially if you're a christian um there are preconceived notions there are narratives that you may have bought into that you that that for you is is inseparable from who you are or what you identify as but if if you claim that christ is your lord in the center if you claim that christ is your center uh and that man isn't this film is going to put you to task mm -hmm. and it's going to see if that's true and there are some things that you're going to struggle with uh, however if you're willing to be objective perfectly um I feel like this film is going to be very empowering for you. Yeah. Last question. Where did you find the book with all those incredible portraits? Uh, I think it was like 1920s, 1930s, black families and everything. Where did you find that book? We found actually several. Okay. Um, uh, one, uh, the one that you're thinking of yeah. is, is um, Samuel Rob Roberts. Richard. Yeah. Richard Samuel Roberts. Okay. Uh, there, there are a few others, but it, a lot of it just came through through researching and, and coming across photos, and then and then backtracking on like who the who the uh, photographer is. A lot of these photos were found in basements, mm -hmm. uh, riding away the the negatives mm -hmm. of houses that were about to be demolished. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just so happened that uh, before demoing the homes, they found these negatives mm -hmm. and turned them over to. Uh, libraries or, or yeah. museums or what have you and so it, it's what, what's ironic about so, all that though is that Richard Samuel Roberts he was a photographer in Florida mm -hmm. and he worked as a stevedore uh, and his wife her she had certain health issues that she couldn't really deal with the Florida Sun mm. and so he raised up enough money to move to, to gather up all his things and move to, I think, North Carolina. Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. South Carolina. South Carolina. And so he moved to Columbia, South Carolina, bought his house. He didn't rent his house. He there bought his house. Like my dad. Yep. And he worked as a janitor, but he would moonlight as a photographer. So he was able to buy this, this photography studio. Mm -hmm. And he uh, took all of the... He was the black... He was the photographer that all black people would go to to take any of his pictures. He took a picture of Booker T. Washington too. Wow, which it's, wasn't in the book. It's not in the book. But we fa we found the mm -hmm. shot of Booker T. Washington in his studio, mm -hmm. and I think the point that Chad was going to get to is that the people who preserved this, mm -hmm. they write the forward of this book as 
Columbia being a unique little town where blacks an anomaly, an anomaly. Yeah. and they just so happened to not put in a picture of the no most famous the black man wow. in the world. But what they do is they give credit to W.B. Du Bois. Du Bois is, is quoted in the Ford mm -hmm. as being... So it's just, we found it, but because we were able to see it, mm -hmm. um, we the gatekeepers of information oh yeah they're the ones who are writing the forwards for these books they're framing our history for us yeah yeah so let's get to the real question <laughs> when can we expect uncle tom to they're about to come out uh august 12th is the date that okay. we've been told so uh hopefully that will that will happen so it will be august for sure but august 12th is the date that we've been given so buckle up screening dates uh cities. they're working on it uh yeah. definitely los angeles Down. of course okay <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah it's our home crowd yeah, man. Come on, yeah. Man. definitely uh we'll, we'll do multiple screens and okay. uh uh but definitely uh it looks it's de looking like uh chicago los angeles tampa Hmm. Uh, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yeah, that's a big. And then I think they said something about Nashville. No Atlanta. Um, not as of yet, but I mean, I, I think it could change. Yeah. Right now, I mean, Uncle Tom's so grassroots. It's like you know, now that we've we're completing the film. Yeah. Um, I think it will do what it did last time and catch its own fire. When can we expect a trailer to be out there that people can kind of wet their appetite? Uh, I would say in the next two weeks. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know. Justin, Chad, I can't thank you enough for being here with me on the Staff Basketball Podcast and um, allowing us to discuss this film and kind of getting people ready for it. Uh, I look forward to seeing it out there on the big screen. I look forward to being there at the screening. And just thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for being my friend. Yes, sir. <laughs> As Doc Holliday was saying. Yeah. So um, be well and continue the great work. And there is an Uncle Tom 3 already kind of in the mix, right? Yeah, it's it's happening. You See? heard it here first. There you go. You heard it here first, folks. Well, thank you so much, and God be with you, and God bless you. And, folks, thanks for tuning in to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. God keep you always. church was the central point. It was the center point of social gathering, culture, religious activity, everything. Every Sunday, you woke up, you had breakfast with your mom and dad, and then all of us came out of the house at the same time, and we start walking toward Sunday school. Even if you couldn't sing, you're going to be in the youth choir. And then Wednesday, you would go to youth Bible study. And then the summer, you go to church retreat camp. Those were just expected things. And that formed a fundamental basis of the black community. It was that sense of right and wrong. It was that sense of morality. It was that sense of discipline that we had. The church was producing hope. 
It produced within the community a stability of purpose. It held us together. Families were strong. Dad was there. Mom was there. The children were growing up under the influence of a two-parent home. That all changed 